0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Welcome. I'm Di Palmer and I'm the Director of Assessment in CIE. And I'm going to start off. It's wonderful to have such a large and eclectic group. Just possible that you might find listening to one person for an hour hard work. So we thought we'd break it up and um, present in three sections. So, our our title that we gave was um, Developing a New Linear linear Qualification, How Hard Can It Be? We've been... um, Cambridge Assessment has been in the business of developing and running qualifications, as in school examinations, for more than 100 years, more than 150 years. So, you'd expect us to be used to doing it by now. Um, Certainly... Going around the world, if you talk about uh, examinations and people ask what you do, quite often they're, they're, they're a bit puzzled when we first of all start talking about what we do. But then, either in the UK or many other places in the world, the response will come back, oh yeah, I know who you are. I took one of your examinations. And certainly the previous vice-chancellor of the university, Alison Richards, when she started as vice-chancellor, when, before she actually started, she did a world tour she actually went around the world to talk to people in various countries in the world about Cambridge University. What did they think about Cambridge University and what role did they feel that it had? And she was surprised that for many, many people around the world, Cambridge University actually meant Cambridge examinations, as in O levels and A levels, rather than things which are strictly part of the university as she had thought about it. So Okay, we've been around a long time. Lots of people know us for our O-levels, our A-levels and our IGCSEs. So it might be possible for some people to think, well, what we do then is the same, same. It's what we've been doing for 100 years, nothing new there. Nothing could be further from the truth. We've done a lot of new things. And whilst we're particularly going to be talking about Cambridge pre-U today, it would be far from the truth to say that that's the first new qualification that we've been involved with. In fact, going back to the 1980s, um, we as an organisation were involved in the development of the International GCSE, which is IGCSE, which is something that um, has got quite a high profile in the UK nowadays. And we were also involved in the development of the earliest modular A-levels. And I mention that because my colleague, Mark, who's going to be presenting later, was actually one of the people who was involved in that development. So we've got a lot of experience doing these things. So how difficult could it be? We know how to do this. We've done it before. And so we would perhaps anticipated that developing a new qualification is not all sunshine and light. It can be pretty hard work. It can be difficult. But we did know what we were doing. We anticipated that it would be hard work. It's possible that we maybe underestimated one or two of the challenges that we would um, encounter on the way in this particular development. And that's why we thought it would be an interesting case study to talk about in this series. So the first challenge is how to meet requirements. We wanted to develop something that would meet the requirements of the people who were interested in it. So the first set of people who came to us were actually schools. We had an approach from a group of schools in the UK and they were looking for an alternative to the A level as it was then. That was the six module modular A level that existed before the most recent change in the UK A levels. I'm not going to talk about A levels at all today because we could get quite <clears throat> confused talking about A levels because... There's the A-level modular system as it was then, six modules. There's the current modular A-level in the UK, which typically has four modules. And then there's the international A-level, which is not like either of the above. We're not talking about those. We're going to be talking about this. We were approached by schools and they were not completely happy with the A-level. They were not alone and they knew they were not alone. There were a lot of issues. There was a lot of discussion at the time. And they perceived this as an opportunity to work with a partner to develop something from the bottom up. And they approached Cambridge Assessment. And Cambridge Assessment agreed, yes, we would work with them. And the the privilege of working with the schools and making this new development fell to CIE as part of Cambridge Assessment. These were some of the issues that the schools had with A-levels that typically consisted of six modules and at least two opportunities in each year of the A-level course to take modules, they developed what they called a retake culture. In other words, some students, instead of studying and then at the end of their study taking their exams, did a little bit of study, took an exam to see how it went. If it didn't go well, they'd take it again and maybe take the same thing three or four times. So it was a Constantly thinking about examinations. There was a lot of talk about grade inflation. Was it getting easier to gain certain grades? Some people thought it was. There was a problem perceived, that there was a lack of discrimination with the modular A levels as they then existed. So many, many students were getting grade A And it was really difficult to tell the difference between those students at grade A, who were in fact the best students and who were not. Because there was so much time spent taking examinations, it was perceived that there was less time for teaching. And so you were always close to the next examination session. So the students were encouraged, if you like, to focus on the exams rather than focus on the learning. And because the modules were quite small, each one, And because sometimes the modules weren't closely related to what was going to happen in the other modules, there was, if you like, a fragmentation of the learning that students taking an A-level subject would think that, well, I've done that module now, I can forget that bit and I'll focus on the other bits. (coughs) And so that by the time they got to the end of the session, uh, end of their A-levels and their six modules, they maybe didn't have the overview of the subject that the teachers would have liked to see them have. And these were the issues that the schools brought to us. I said the schools were not alone. There had been um, a review of the A-levels that happened at much the same time, undertaken by um, um, reporting to a forerunner of the current um, Department for Education, and which looked at the implications of the modular mind. It talked about the lack ...of a coherent understanding across topic domains within a subject. So, in other words, students would be focusing on one part, say, of mathematics. Um, They knew that they were going to be um, assessed on a particular part of statistics. So they wouldn't be thinking about any other parts of mathematics. They'd think of that in, in, in isolation while they were addressing it. And there was also a concern about the lack of focus... A-level, when it was first introduced, had been specifically designed as a pre-university qualification. Most of the people taking A-level would be expecting to go on to university, whereas it had come to be much more generally taken by more or less all the students who stayed on at school past 16. And that was perceived as taking it away from its original Purpose and making it less useful for that purpose. So that was a a general unease. And if the schools were uneasy and there was a general unease, there was a very strong unease in higher education, and the sorts of things they said echoed what the others said. But in particular, they found again this problem with insufficient discrimination. So many, many students with grade A, how do you tell which were the best ones? which if you were a selective university, they were the ones you wanted. And also, how could you tell what a grade A meant? Because in many subjects, you could put six modules together from a choice of far more than six. So you might have a grade A in a subject, but it wasn't easy for somebody in a university department to tell whether you had expertise and knowledge in the particular area of the subject that was required for your university department. You couldn't tell exactly what they'd have studied. The other things that were particularly um, an issue for for, for H.E., on top of the things that had been said otherwise, was the lack of these independent study skills. Um, I think everywhere I've been to any kind of conference about education or assessment in the last two or three years, these independent study skills, sometimes called 21st century skills, have come up as an issue, and these were particularly highlighted by H.E., So that was the context, if you like. That was um, what people were asking us. And so the challenge was, um, were we up for it? So we were. We, We said we'd do this. And the idea was to develop something from the bottom up. We would go to the schools. We would go to the subject associations. We would go to the universities. And we would find out what they wanted to develop. We wanted to consult widely... in two ways. One about the general overall approach for this new um, qualification, this new um, approach. And one was on the basis of the subject by subject approach. So there were two areas of discussion and there was a huge amount of discussion at this stage. The general approach, there were, I think, four, maybe five areas that we wanted to talk about. The first one was if you like, breadth versus choice. Was it right to allow students at 16 plus to choose what they wanted to study or should it be required of them that they studied a particular breadth or a particular selection of areas? And in discussion with all of these different stakeholders, we reached the conclusion that it was right to let students at 16 plus choose which subjects they wanted to study further. In other words, they'd earned the right to specialise on the subjects they wanted to study and we weren't going to insist, as part of this Cambridge pre-U development, that they studied anything in particular. It was their choice. So that was the first thing. The second thing was the question of really how difficult, how difficult should it be, if you like? What, What were we trying to do in terms of discrimination? And our decision there was that we wanted to make this qualification accessible to everybody that A-level was accessible to, but at the same time we wanted to make it discriminate better, particularly at the higher levels of achievement. So where the schools and the universities were saying grade A at A-level didn't really t- tell you enough about who were the best students and who weren't, we wanted to make it discriminate better. So it would discriminate, it would have a, a level of discrimination beyond... A-level. The third area was what should be the correct balance between subject skills, subject knowledge and cross-curricular skills. It was quite clear that the universities were asking for independent study skills, the ability to think critically about what they learned and so forth. So to what extent was that going to be built into the subjects and to what extent was it also going to be focused on as a separate area of learning? And um, the, uh, the design we came up with um, went, if you like, for both and. So within each subject, we wanted to have make sure that those skills were developed, but we also wanted to have designed an element of the pre-U that um, specifically develops those wider skills. It was important that academic subjects retained their own integrity. And I think the discussion that took most time really was the question of linearity what we've called linearity and it's in the in the um, title of our presentation to what extent did we want to to make it the case that all of the assessment would happen at the end of the program of study and to what extent did we want to allow for intermediate opportunities for assessment and in the end we decided, and this was after a lot of discussion, it wasn't just a sort of off the top of the head thing. After a lot of discussion, we went for linearity. We went for having all of the assessment in the main subjects at the end. And the reasons why we did that are up on the slide. The coherence in assessment is perhaps the, most, well, the one that needs a bit of explanation. And that really was the question of making sure that when we were assessing the subject, we were asking the students to bring to that assessment their understanding that they had developed over a couple of years of study across the subject. So we weren't just, if you like, shining a torch on one bit of the subject at a time. We were actually asking them to approach each part of the subject with the full range of what they'd learned. We wanted... The teachers to have some control, so we wanted to make space in the in the study for the teachers to be able to teach what they wanted to teach at the time when they wanted to teach it, rather than making it um, a programme that had to be followed step by step. When we came to the individual subjects, I mentioned, I talked at the beginning about bottom up, and what we meant by that was we went to the teachers and said to them. Okay, you're a geographer or you're a mathematician. What would you like to teach? What do you think it would be exciting to teach and appropriate to teach students at this level? What do you think it should be? And that we worked from there. And then we went to the uh, first-year undergraduate teachers in the university and the admissions tutors and said to them, what would you like the students to know and be able to do when they come to you at the beginning of their first year? And we worked from there. And we went to subject associations and said to them, where's the thinking going in this subject? What do you think should be included now in, in a subject at this level for these sorts of students? And we went from there. And so that's how we started to put our principles into practice. This has got a lot of detail on this slide. And this is some of just a summary, really, of the consultations we did with HE. Um, I'm not going to go through all of that. But it's just to give you an example. And if we did that much consultation with HE and that many iterations of going back and asking them and checking and seeing if they liked what we were talking about and whether we'd understood correctly, we did more than that with schools. So we did a huge amount of listening, of putting it together and going back and listening again. And at the end of it all, we came up with the structure. Now, this, word is, this slide is the first slide that includes the word diploma. And the question of a diploma or not a diploma was one of the questions that we discussed a great deal at the design stage. And it was quite clear that there was, there was a desire for a diploma out there, but people didn't want to be committed to having to do the whole diploma. And so we, let, we, we sort of had a have your cake and eat it approach. So there is a diploma structure, but each of the principal subjects that's available, each of the elements of the diploma is available separately. And the the structure of the diploma consists of three principal subjects, um, and that provides... There was a completely free choice there, so you could combine any three subjects you wanted. And then there was an underpinning of... um, global perspectives which provided the breadth of, of study and the skills and the, the study skills and independent research opportunity that the universities said they wanted and the schools said they wanted to provide. And that's unlike, um, well, it, it requires teaching. It's quite a, a, a heavy load of learning and teaching. It isn't based on particular any particular content. There's no content knowledge to be... Um, mastered in this it's all to do with skills and understanding and that provides the opportunity to go into depth in a particular area and to demonstrate that you've developed the sorts of study skills that are required at university and then there are some optional short courses principal subjects that that, that you could do as extras so the short courses uh, only exist in certain subjects languages and at the moment maths And they were for people who didn't want to do the whole principal subject but did want to do some study. But they're not like... They're taken after one year of study, but as the name suggests, they're shorter than the full subjects, but then they don't count towards the principal subject. So, for example, if you took a French short course and then you went on to do the principal subject French, your result in the short course would have nothing to do with your result in the principal subject. They're completely independent. And so that was what we came up with as the structure and it's possible for students to build their own pathway through that choosing what suits them to study and developing the the skills and the knowledge as well as the um, skills and the understanding as well as the knowledge they need for, for successful university study. The global perspectives which we call gpr because there's two parts of it global perspectives and independent research the the key components of that that cut across all subjects were as they're listed here and these were the things that the universities particularly had said that they wanted to see that the students were able to demonstrate when they arrived at university and the independent research report was to allow students to either to dig deeper into a particular part of one of their principal subjects that they were absolutely passionate about, or to, to look at something that crossed across subjects, or, to, or something completely different. And this is a separate qualification, and this is probably well, this is hugely popular as part of as part of the um, part of the uh, whole um, Cambridge Pre-U. I've left this as my last slide. Because it, it, I wanted to, to stay in your minds. We, the original schools that approached us at the beginning were independent schools and some of the most famous independent schools in the country. And that might give the impression that this was something that was especially for the independent schools and really wasn't for everybody. But it was a key part of the way they came to us and the things they stressed to us as being important right at the beginning was that they would not be interested in this this development at all unless it was available to everybody. The access had to be for everybody in the country, all schools, all, t- all, all young people. And that was certainly um, a key part of our mission as a part of the university, widening access to an education. There was no restriction. And because that was really important, it created the second challenge because... Cambridge International Examinations is free to develop a qualification that can be taken outside the maintained sector in the UK. But if it's going to be taken within the maintained sector in the UK, the second challenge was, we've called it jumping through hoops, we had to get it fully accredited by the regulator. And Val is going to talk to you about that.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, Yes, we called it jumping through hoops. Um, in, In fact, each hoop... Um, represents a separate challenge in itself, but the the hoops are actually interconnected because if you didn't jump through hoop one, you couldn't actually, you weren't eligible to jump through hoop two and so on. So it's actually a series of challenges that we faced uh, in order to widen access, um, of which accreditation was one, um, but there's also the UCAS tariff, uh, the funding, the league table points and the university recognition. So all of these things were linked together and we had to start working on them all at the same time but work out the correct order. So I'm going to speak uh, briefly about each of these. Um, as Each of these was actually quite onerous. Um, the little man there is jumping through them quite happily but In fact, each of these represented a huge amount of work. So the first part, QCA accreditation. Um, It was QCA then. Of course, it's since split into Ofqual and QCDA. But at the time, it was QCA. Uh, We, first of all, had to get recognition of CIE, Cambridge International, as an awarding body. Because we'd been working overseas, we hadn't actually needed to go through the UK regulator before this. So this meant a big culture change for us. Uh, This was something we'd not done before, and so we started to find out what we had to do. Um, We began conversations in 2006, first of all, with phone calls, and then with what we call the early dialogue The early early dialogue meeting was held in London and that was actually Di and myself went along to talk to the regulators to find out what do we have to do. Basically we have to fill in an application form, sounds easy enough, uh, until we find out that there are in fact 13 sections in the application form with 33 pages after we'd completed it and we had to supply 22 supporting documents. QCA wanted to know about every aspect of CIE's work, right through from registering centres, how we made entries, how we produced our question papers, the security of the papers, uh, how we recruited examiners, how we monitored examiners. Uh, I could go on and on. Um, This was a huge undertaking. Across the organisation, we had to work with every department of CIE in order to pull this information together. Uh, Some of the documentation included things like the Code of Practice, the Admin Guide for Centres, the Handbook for Centres, registration procedures, and so on. We made our first submission in November 2006, uh, but... It took three submissions because it went backwards and forwards. We had to provide more information. Uh, We had to provide clarifications on information. And eventually we received our letter of acceptance in May 2007. So that was a major achievement. We all went hurrah. We thought this was, um, we thought we were done. And then we found out, of course, that we had to move to the next part. That was what we call Part A accreditation. So we then had to move to Part B accreditation. We had been told by QCA that, okay, we're doing a very thorough, we've changed now, we do a very thorough accreditation. of We look really carefully at the awarding body. And then once you're approved, we have a light touch accreditation for the actual syllabuses. So we moved into the next stage, the light touch. I have to put that in, in, in inverted commas um, because if, if there's anyone from QCA here, um, I'm sorry, but it felt anything but light touch to us. Um, we had to do separate submissions for every subject. So we had over 30, I think it's something like 34 submissions. That was fair enough. What we hadn't anticipated was exactly how intense each submission would be and some of the questions that would come back to us. Uh, one of the things that we, we entered into dialogue about was guided learning hours because we, we started out with a, a number that we thought was appropriate for the guided learning hours and QCA challenged that. But then we found that, in fact, QCA, QCA had two different definitions of guided learning hours one in their documentation and another on their website so that led to some interesting discussions as you can imagine um, some of the feedback we got was extremely useful some of it was was fantastic dda that's the disability and discrimination act that had recently been passed and some of our syllabuses had not taken that into account so we found that some of their feedback was extremely useful. We we found you know we, we changed things so that it wasn't just an oral, for example, because if people had a, a speech impediment. Uh we you know so they gave us that kind of feedback and we were able to change the assessments and make them more accessible. So again, part of that widening uh access. Some of it was less useful. Uh for example, some of it was not consistent. We found, for example, things that were acceptable in physics were not acceptable in chemistry. And we couldn't see any rationale for some of that. Uh, we had something of a battle over the essay marking criteria. We believed very strongly that the uh the essay marking criteria should be holistic. And we were we found ourselves being compared with a level, which of course was modular uh, and things had been divided into chunks with quite a mechanistic <coughs> mark scheme. We were not prepared to do that, so we, we fought and held the high ground on that one to retain our holistic style mark schemes. So it was actually, as I say, quite a, a long process, um, and sometimes we, we felt there was perhaps an agenda although we couldn't quite work out where it was coming from or what it was, but uh, we felt there was one. However, we did go through all of this. We got everything accredited, and therefore we were able to move on to the next stage, which was to apply for a UCAS tariff. Uh, The UCAS tariff is very important in the UK. Uh, It's a number of points that are given to each exam so that universities can compare and see how well a qualification prepares people for university. The gatekeeping criteria for uh, qualifications in the UK, it's slightly different for overseas qualifications, is that it must be accredited by QCA at level three on the NQF. So we'd got that, we were okay there, we were listed. Um, And we also had to have 30 responses from higher education showing that it was accepted. This was an interesting catch-22, because when you went to the universities, they said, well, yes, we'll accept it when you've got a UCAS tariff. So we said, yeah, but we need 30 before we can get the UCAS tariff. So that involved a little bit of chasing around. It's quite difficult with a new qualification. However, we did get 30, and we then were able to apply for the tariff. Again, a very time-consuming process. Um, We had to have a range of subjects evaluated, English language, maths, uh, biology, French and economics, as well as GPR. So this involved at least two people for each subject, uh, someone from within CIE, the product manager or group manager, uh, the principal examiner, plus some additional staff, so we had at least 15 people involved in this. It was a three-day process in Cheltenham, but before that we had days of preparation. We had to produce massive amounts of documentation and compare that with massive amounts of A-level documentation and fill in comparisons and grids, and and then we went off to UCAS and held this three-day meeting, Then there was all the follow-up work, checking the expert group reports, and so it went on. However, again, it was a very thorough process, and at the end of it, we felt very pleased with the results. Um, I'm not sure how far you can see that, but essentially, the tariff for the principal subjects, slightly higher than an A-level, and the tariff for the short course, the same as an AS, the tariff for GPR, the same as an A-level, and the stripy ones are still to be determined because we have to have two years of candidate evidence before we can get the D1 grades and the D2 grade for the principal subject. So we'll be going back to them later in the year when we have two sets of candidate evidence. This is a little quotation from the expert group report uh, that I think sums up the, 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 the impression of higher education about linear assessment. Um, because the, the 130 refers to the D3 on the scale and the 45 to the uh, P3. And these were rounded up to reflect the critical nature of the terminal assessment of pre-U principal subjects. So there was some added value seen by higher education... Once we would got that, we also started to look at funding because clearly if you want to widen access, you want it to be taken in the state sector, you've got to have funding. So we talked with DCSF. We got it listed on Section 96. We went to the Learning and Skills Council. That's now changed its name to the Young People's Learning Agency. Uh, Then basically go through that process. The pre-U principal subjects and GPR are funded in the same way as an A-level. The funding is on an annual basis each year. Uh, Although it's a two-year program, the funding is done uh, each year in the same way as A-level. And we also needed to get it included in the league table points so that if schools take this, they get rewarded in the same way as they would do for A-level because the school needs to publish its league table points. And if they drop down the league tables, that can be important for them because then parents don't necessarily want to send their children there, especially in the private schools. So we went through what, by this time, QCA had split, so we went through QCDA. And we have that, although we're still not happy with what we've got for that, because it's out of 300, basically. And there's the, the P3 is 150, like a grade E, and 300 is given to the D1 at the top like an A-level A-star. So the D3 is given 265, whereas an A-level grade A is 270. So we're not actually quite happy with the parity uh, of the league table points because we feel they should be slightly higher on some of the grades. So we're actually still discussing that. And then finally, we had to go to the universities and go back to the universities and collect all the statements. You'll see there a quotation from Durham uh, where they they actually note the academic rigour of the linear approach. Uh, We've got 143 universities with statements at this point in time. There are still some that we haven't got, but they tend to be more specialised colleges that we haven't Uh, actually collected those from but we don't anticipate any difficulties with those in all cases universities like all other stakeholders were very concerned to see what the standard of the pre-u would be as compared with a level Uh, and mark will tell you about that in the next section
2: Good afternoon. I'm Mark Dowling. I'm one of uh, Di Palmer's two deputy directors in assessment services in Cambridge International Um, and I'm the one who's responsible for standards. Now it's nice to see in the audience incidentally so many people who were involved in the development of uh, Cambridge Pre-U. Presumably you've come along just to make sure that it wasn't all some sort of dream and uh, also, to, to see our friends from the International Study Programme, uh, who, whose approach may be rather different and who might feel that you might find that this is an opportunity to slip into your dreams. Which we shall see. Now, the, this section of the afternoon has been called Setting the Standard, but in a way that's a bit of a misnomer. Because really, with Pre-U, we weren't setting a standard, uh, we were rather Producing something which aligned to an existing standard, A-level standard. And we were having to do that, not just because of our... Well, for a couple of reasons. First, our undertakings to QCA, which have been mentioned a number of times. Uh, The undertaking, for example... The the bottom level of a pass in this new pre-U qualification would be the equivalent of the bottom level of a pass of a grade E in A level. And similarly, the the bottom level of our new distinction grade uh, would be the equivalent of the bottom level of a grade A at A level. So we've got those uh, preset equivalences anyway. And then uh, quite apart from what the regulator, what we might be saying to the regulator and reinforcing that, we've got the fact that the users of this qualification in various senses uh, would require this to align to A-level. It was an alternative to A-level from the point of view of the schools, uh, but it was going to be used for at least some of the same purposes as A-level in terms of preparation for the next stage of study. And we were doing this, of course, in, uh, in a, a number of contexts. Um, And one aspect of the context was that in uh, University of Cambridge International Exams, fortunately, we were already producing A-level examinations. We have really got two suites of of, of A-level examinations. One taken in uh, Singapore, okay, so uh, Singapore A-levels, which can be uh, characterised, if you like, by uh, a a standard that is A-level called H2 plus um, uh, short courses. called H1, which are of the same standard as an A-level, and then they do something else, which is rather like uh, the former special papers. So we've got a suite of A-levels for Singapore, and then we've got our international um, A-levels uh, and AS-levels taken in many countries uh, a- across the world. So, so we've, got, we've got our own A-levels, and we had before pre-U. And then, of course, as uh, Dias al- already uh, mentioned the fact, that we've also got in CIE... Uh, we've got staff who were used to dealing with UK A levels um, and other UK qualifications in the days before uh, Cambridge Assessment or UCLS was split uh, into CIE and um, OCR and uh, Cambridge ESOL and others. Um, so, if we consider the, those are some parts of the context, and then there are other aspects of the, the context that CIE has its own code of practice, um, of, of course, as has also been mentioned. Uh, awarding bodies in this country have to comply with the regulator's code of practice. While we were not running examinations in UK, the UK-maintained sector, we didn't have to comply with that code of practice. But from the beginning of CIE, we thought that we ought to have our own code of practice. I mean, if they're going to have a code of practice, we must have one too, and ours was bigger. Big code of practice... Um, and we, we proudly sent that off to QCA amongst all the other bits of evidence that we knew what we were doing. So that's one uh, context. It says, for instance, in the Code of Practice that we will offer a wide range of subjects, qualifications and flexible schemes of assessment to enable students of all abilities to do their best, whether progressing to further stages of education or into employment. So that's part of uh, of the Uh, broad statements that are in the early parts of the CIE Code of Practice. And then there is another document called the Cambridge Approach, which goes above the level of CIE, the Cambridge Approach, uh, operating um, across Cambridge Assessment, OCR, CIE, Cambridge ESOL, and setting out the principles that underpin the development and conduct of fair and ethical assessments. Um, we've also, of course, in CI, also been alluded to, got a long record of new qualifications. So that wasn't new to us um, in question of how difficult can it be introducing a new qualification? We'd introduced IGCSE in the, uh, the days of Uckles, higher IGCSE, um, the, the, the ACE diploma, H3, which is the qualification in uh, Singapore the, that I've referred to. So there's a record of that. We also had the context of English regulators' requirements if we were going to operate in the maintained sector in the UK, which, of course, we wanted to very much, essential part of the process. And we've also got the, as has been seen, the needs of potential candidates and customers. But uh, I've put up various contexts. One thing I haven't put up as as, uh, one of the contexts, deliberately, um, is the 150 years' worth of past papers in the basement across the road, because... This was not an exercise in turning the clock back. Okay, we were not, in fact, here trying to uh, produce A level classic, okay, or, or A level original, become the sort of worthers worth of the um, assessment industry, if you like. Uh, and that's why I wasn't allowed to turn up in my slippers and cardigan. So, so, so that that is uh, definitely uh, not what it was about. But this process of uh, getting a standard that was the equivalent of um, A-level was going to culminate in the process of grading, which, by which I mean the determination of how many marks you need uh, for each grade in the qualification, deciding how many marks do you need for what we were calling, say, the bottom of a distinction, D- D3, uh, and so on. And that's going to be important, but there are various stages uh, to be gone through before then. And this is almost my all-purpose slide that so many of you um, are used to seeing, which says, the benefit of those of you in the front especially, uh, you're you're on a fortnight's course, but there are really only four things you've got to get right to get assessments right. You've got to get the syllabuses and the schemes of assessment right. You've got to get the question papers right. You've got to get the marking right. And in the end, you've got to get the grading right. And if you can do all those four things, um, then you can spend the rest of the week doing something else. Now, thinking of the... First of these things, the syllabuses and schemes of assessment, and concentrating on what this meant uh, in terms of the development of pre-U. Essentially, in developing syllabuses, they needed to be different enough from. Uh, what was already on offer at A-level, they needed to be different enough to satisfy various stakeholders and people involved. Okay, They needed to be different enough to satisfy the schools, different enough to satisfy the universities, different enough to satisfy the the regulator and the funding and uh, league table authorities because if they weren't different enough, then their existence would not be justified. Then pre-U would be redundant. It would be uh, just... uh, Almost the same as A-level. So, difference needed. And here's a very similar slide. OK, the is needed to be similar enough to A-level to satisfy the schools, the universities, the regulator and the funding and league table people, because if they were uh, not similar enough, then in a way you, you had created something which would be too difficult to compare. It would not be comparable. You would have gone uh, too far. And as we've already uh, heard, there was a strong element of consultation in the development of the syllabuses and lots of feedback from those those groups, including the regulators' um, useful feedback which helped us to improve um, syllabuses. Now, one of the key features which has already been mentioned about pre-U, one one of the distinctive features, I suppose, was linearity. And linearity was a word that I suppose didn't even exist in an assessment context of uh, 20 years ago or so. We, at least we had linear syllabuses without even thinking about it. Um, li- a linear syllabus being one where all the assessment comes at the end, as distinct from the subsequent modular approach or unit, now unitised approach that breaks uh, the, the assessment up. <clears throat> now, it is possible, uh, generally speaking, to take modular syllabuses or, or unitized syllabuses in a linear way. To, as, a, as a candidate, you could still take all the exams at the end, but even if you did you haven 't really got um, a linear syllabus because if the if you've still got a series of a, a number of papers which cover different aspects of the syllabus, you have divided up the content of the the material so Line- modularity and linearity. This, this, this distinction applies not really just to when they take, you take the exams, but to how the syllabus um, is divided up. And we went, but by going for a linear approach, you can say that you've got more opportunity in any paper to uh, draw on material from different bits of the syllabus and on the links between them. And we went down that uh, that route, and uh, that was in. Uh, response to the consultation and in response to the consultation some of the earlier idea uh, that routinely pre-U would have a sort of short course in it which might be a subset of uh, the principal subject that disappeared from most uh, from most subjects and that that model that I've just referred to I said we weren't going to talk about A-levels but that that is the model for for most of our international A-levels most of our international A-levels are sort of in CIE, are sort of semi-modular. There's half the course, which constitutes the AS course, and you can uh, typically perhaps be examined in that at the end of one year, and then add on the other half of the course uh, for uh, A2. Now, that wasn't, in fact, the model that we ended up with for pre-U. We ended up with a, a more... Um, linear model for for pre-U. And why was that? Why was it that the the centres that we were dealing with were interested in that idea? Well, one reason was uh, uh, that they were fed up, if you like, with assessment taking up so much of the time under under a modular system. More, perhaps, than was intended when um, modular systems were devised uh, because uh, teaching would stop um, for not only for students to take their exams at different points during the course but sometimes for them to repeat the exams that they'd taken earlier on because the rules allowed them to and also, whereas in the old days if you like, there was study leave for uh, n- near the end of the course there might well be um, l- loss of teaching time for study leave or for revision uh, uh, before each modular assessment. So, the... the, the um, Good news was, was that more teaching time would be released okay, through, through a linear approach. And then that, that raises the question of what are you going to do with this extra time? H- how is that going to change what is in the pre-U syllabuses compared with what is in the A-level syllabuses? And the answer is, um, in, well, it, in different ways. In some subjects, it meant more content. Some things were introduced which were uh, typically not, as as topics, typically not in the A-level syllabus. So it might be more content, it might be more uh, in-depth study of particular things, or it might be a greater uh, element of personal investigation uh, than occurred in A-level. So if we've got uh, such things as personal investigation and in-depth studies, I think it is worth bearing in mind Um, that from my memory of having both taken and indeed taught pre-modular A-levels, those were not necessarily the characteristics of um, A-level in its, um, linear A-level in its heyday. So we weren't just uh, reinventing um, old A-levels. Indeed, uh, come to think of it, since I'm talking to you about syllabuses at the moment, having very much of a syllabus wasn't characteristic of... um, (laughs) <laughs> of old A-levels either. The syllabus might actually just be a few lines in a big booklet. There were, there were days when uh, exam boards were able to produce their entire syllabus uh, bu- booklet, and it contained everything. And, and now we have large booklets for each, each individual um, subject. So there were those things, and then, of course, the wish um, to be with uh, the sorts of words that were coming up to, to, to describe how the syllabuses for pre-U were different, were intellectually stimulating, interesting, engaging, enjoyable. These were the things that we wanted, uh, wanted to see, as well, of course, as excellent uh, preparation for further study of the subject. OK, so I've, I've covered uh, these things. I haven't talked about a hint of more discretionary time, uh, sometime, more, more discretionary time for teachers to pursue their own interests uh, maybe, uh, things which they could get their students interested in uh, within the scope of the syllabus. So much for um, the syllabuses part, What the sorts of things that we had to think of in terms of getting it right there. Then we had to think about question papers, or at least more or less at the same time, really, because, of course, the regulator would want to see, not, 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 not to mention the potential customers, would want to see examples of the sorts of question papers um, that we had in mind. And on a superficial level, of course, we could just say, trust us, we're an exam board. OK, we will be able to do two difficult things at once. The two difficult things in this context being producing question papers that could discriminate at the top between the various grades that we were setting in pre-U because we were setting something called distinction but dividing it into distinction one, distinction two, distinction three, all of which were the the, the equivalent of the uh, grade A, sorry, grade A at A level in the days before there was A starred. So we we were claiming on the one hand... To, to, to do that, okay, in order to satisfy um, universities and other users that wanted more discrimination at the top, and at the same time, these question papers were going to have to perform the function of um, being suitable for the whole ability range, the whole ability range at least that took A level, okay, because it's an alternative alternative to A level. It needed to be able to discriminate between uh, the grade E. Um, candidate of A-level and the ungraded candidate of A-level. So, um, there was was that requirement in the papers, and we could say... um, to um, use as well. Actually, we've got two more stages coming up. We've got marking and grading. If there are any problems, we can always put them right at the marking and grading stage. But that wouldn't be quite right because, of course, there are issues that can't be put right um, later if your question papers aren't entirely satisfactory. And What I've got in mind here in answer to this this theme that we have about how hard can it be or how, how difficult can these papers be is the answer was that they needed to be, well, they needed to be just right. It's back to this Goldilocks factor, isn't it? Okay, they needed to be hard enough to be comparable to A-level and to provide a little edge, demonstrate stretch and challenge, which were the vogue words coming in uh, to uh, the revised type of A-level at this time. But they needed, at the other hand, to be not hard enough to be off-putting to candidates either... Uh, incentives that were considering doing this, or more importantly, to candidates in the exam room. You did not want um, the the situation where a candidate sees a paper and it's just too difficult and they can't demonstrate what they know, understand and and, and can do. So uh, that's um, a a challenge there. And also, slight variant on that, not only do they have to be not too hard, but they also have to be not too long, because uh, we're dealing with... Um, a, a sort of post-modular age, or a, a, an age where three-hour question papers uh, in, in this country at A-level are now quite unusual. Then there are not very many, there are some three-hour question papers in pre-U, but in fact uh, not very many. So that's a, a particular um, aspect of it. So um, again, it's not really quite a, a, a return to the past. Now, what question papers are we talking about? Well, obviously, we were going to need to have question papers and the accompanying mark schemes um, produced for specimen papers for the use of the regulator and for the use of people contemplating uh, taking, up, taking this up. We were producing live um, question papers in, in quite a condensed time frame um, and we had to be doing this with the stakeholders that we've talked about in mind in terms of the validity and fairness of the uh, exam, but we also ended up uh, with another kind of question paper uh, needing uh, preparation, um, which is the interim assessment because uh, what we what we did was we produced a sort of f- further set of specimen papers in most subjects um, which would uh, w- which Centres could use and they could then um, submit to us examples of the candidates' responses uh, to these questions in the interim in, in the interim assessment. And that was to try to reassure centers and give them some idea of the sort of standard um, that we were uh, trying to that we were intending to require. Um, so these interim assessments. Involve feedback to centres, that's to say they had to be marked or more strictly speaking they had to be moderated um, by uh, our examiners uh, having been looked at by the teachers in the first place. Now there's a problem here. You can see perhaps why there was a a need for it that uh, schools were engaged on this strange being of a linear examination and they needed something to give them a clue uh, part way about how they were doing. Uh, but there's a problem here because the interim assessments are likely, of course, to uh, deal with the totality of the syllabus and the candidates won't have completed the syllabus. So so it's necessarily going to be a bit fragmentary, the, the, the bits of questions that candidates have done and the assessment that we can give. And although centres might have liked us to be able to say to them at that point, right, that's distinction, that's merit, that's pass, or even more precise, to be even more precise in what we said, we couldn't actually do that um, because we um, we wouldn't have, we hadn't got sufficient evidence there. What we could do was to uh, tell them about the rank order of candidates, tell them about their application of the mark scheme, which of course we supplied so that they could see that they were on the right lines, tell them about general patterns of performance and most particularly pick out answers that typified what we uh, saw as exemplifying the pass, merit and distinction standards. Now, the, that brings us into the marking phase of things and there are a few components which are teacher marked and uh, moderated by us. And of course, for, for those components that are uh, teacher marked, we had to provide thorough inset um, with the principal moderators and chief examiner and other senior people uh, to illustrate what it was that that we were looking for and how to do this marking. Um, But in most cases, we were talking about marking by us. External marking, of course, needed to be of A-level standard, and we therefore were engaging to do this. Examiners, with experience of that standard and, in particular, of what A-level standards could be expected to do in the exam. And then it says, but with no conflict of interest. Okay, no conflict of interest, meaning that, of course, we had to, although teachers from the schools taking pre-U would be interested in providing examiners, um, we uh, had to ensure that they, could, they weren't marking their own candidates' work. But we did engage uh, teachers as examiners. They were the best... Uh, the, in, in, in some ways, the best people uh, to um, involve in order to give them an insight into what was going on, although we had to be very clear to them uh, at all stages in the process to remember which hat they were wearing at any particular time. Were they wearing their marker hat? Were they wearing their teacher hat? Now, despite this, I've used this technical term, um by this time centres were getting twitchy. Okay, this is a sort of twitchiness. You know, do you remember some of you will remember um Yes Minister, in which Sir Humphrey uh, would tell Jim Hacker every so often that's a very brave decision, Minister and it seemed to be a very brave decision uh centres were thinking to do pre you particularly those who were putting all their candidates in. They they must have begun to think, what have we done? I mean, we we should have just waited. You know, you don't have to be first in the queue. We should have just waited and and found out what was going on. So we had to support um, these people and and reassure them um, that, uh, that, that, that all would be well. This was about this sort of time that we had to bite our tongues and be very careful to refer to these first students going through as the pioneers and not the guinea pigs, and um, make sure that everything was all right because of our our duty of care, if you like, to all the students and and indeed the centres. So this um, kind of uh, concern, growing concern, uh, led us to recap uh, some of the things which would be underlying our grading process to bring us to the last part. Just a reminder or to clarify for those of you who might not know, there are nine grades for, uh, for pre u subjects, D1 to D3, M1 to M3, P1 to P3, and these stated equivalences. Um, and we'd already provided, of course, in, in our syllabuses, some uh, general grade descriptors saying what, what it was expected that a distinction candidate, a past candidate, merit candidate would, would achieve. We, they've got the specimen papers and the mark schemes. They've got uh, interim assessments, uh, which they marked and, and we would moderated. They've got feedback to schools. They've been to lots of inset sessions. And all of this was building towards this um, shared understanding. But when we uh, get to do the grading uh, in Cambridge our, ourselves, when we got to do the grading, of course, we had... Basically, I suppose, two kinds of evidence, and this, this is not unique to PreU. When, when we do grading, we've, we've really got two kinds of evidence to use. One is scripts, the, the, the candidates' work, the evidence of the performance of candidates in, in the scripts. And the other is statistical evidence. Okay? So, for instance, it says in this slide that we obtained archive scripts from OCR uh, to illustrate the bottom of grade A and bottom of grade D, e, which are routinely kept by OCR, who need to keep such archives in order to maintain the standard of the a level. Uh, uh, we, we used OCR because, of course, they're part of Cambridge Assessment. But this is OCR uh, to illustrate the, the, um, the A-level standard. And um, very kindly, OCR helped us to, uh, to obtain uh, grade C scripts Um, specially collected for this purpose in order to get us close to the bottom of the other grade, the merit grade, so that we had lots of um, archive evidence of what was meant by A-level standard. Um, There is a qualification, which some of you may already be thinking about, uh, to that. And then, of course, uh, meanwhile, we would have at the top of the list here the scripts of the pre-U candidates themselves. So that was the, the, the basis of the comparison of the work. Meanwhile, we had some figures. As usual, we asked centres to forecast their candidates' grades, as we do for A-level and O-level and IGCSE and so on. We also asked centres to tell us how they had done in the past in this subject when they were taking A-level. Okay. We collected that information from centres. And then we also went through, with the help of our research colleagues, um, This uh, quite sophisticated process, which is the one which is customarily used to maintain standards in the UK in A-level, which is that you calculate a distribution of the the expected grades of these candidates based, if you like, on their ability. It's an attempt to measure the quality of the cohort. And that measure of the quality of the cohort is based on how they did two years previously in their 16-plus examinations, in the case of the UK, in their GCSE examinations. So you're able to work out what, historically speaking, has happened to people in the top 10% of of ability measured by GCSE. What sort of A-level grade did they subsequently get two years later if they took A-level geography? or A-level French, or A-level uh, chemistry, or whatever. And then what happened to the people who were not in the top 10%, but in the next 10% and so on. So all that is already routine for, uh, for OCR, uh, for example. And we did a, a, a similar process, because what we were trying to do here was to answer the question, well, if these candidates hadn't entered pre-U, but had instead entered A-level what grades would they be likely to have got? And that was actually quite a, I have to admit, quite a, a particularly relevant question to pre-U first time out because we suspected, rightly, uh, that our, um, our, uh, the candidates who were doing pre-U t- t- did not represent the full ability range of A-level in, to, to the same extent as the people who were doing A-level. Okay, but It was, if was you like, a skewed candidature first time round. And therefore, it's particularly important to know, looking at this, using the same process as would have been done in the UK anyway, so what, uh, what outcomes would we be expected uh, to have got? Now, I'm sure that some of you will have begun to realise that lots of these things are fraught with difficulty. Think about the script evidence first. What difficulty is there? there? We are going to get... Uh, principal examiners who are expert in A-level and experts in um, pre-U, because they probably help set the papers and so on, to look at these scripts that OCR have provided and these scripts that our candidates have just done, and we're going to say, right, we've got to align the standard. What's the problem? Well, one of the problems, of course, I say of course, one of the problems some of you will be very familiar with is that some of those OCR scripts, some of those UK scripts, would be at AS level standard, and some of them would be at A2 level standard, the standard re- reached by, uh, required by people in the second year of an A-level course, second year exams. And we weren't actually trying to align ourselves to any of those. We weren't aligning to AS level, which is relatively low, and we weren't aligning to A2. We were aligning ourselves to the overall A level in the middle. So you see... Our examiners had, uh, had a, a, probably a bit of an issue there, if you like, because they were, well, what they might be able to do was say, right, AS gives me a, a floor, A2 gives me a ceiling, and it's somewhere in between is, is where I'm aiming, preferably halfway in between. But quite apart from that, it, it's a modular syllabus that, we, that they were comparing with. So they were looking at scripts on particular modules for, uh, done for A-level, a fine, fine, That's what we wanted them to do. But they were done by candidates who were perhaps concentrating on that one-sixth part of the syllabus that was being examined then and who might indeed have done that paper before. They might have been retakers. So there's a problem there in uh, making sure that we're comparing like with like, and that problem emerged um, during the course of the grading meeting. So there's a problem with the archive material. The the statistics... um, I know that there are people here who wouldn't like to call these things statistics. The numbers then, the figures, um, some possible problems here. Grades forecast by centres, hmm, they're not always very accurate, grades forecast by centres. They're not always very accurate, even when they're doing a a qualification they've been doing for 50 years or so. (laughs) So this is a new qualification, and we're saying, well, we know you won't really know, but but you've got the equivalences, you know... What A-level grades you think these people would have got had they done A-level? Think in those terms. Hmm, OK. Some, some uncertainty. Let's hope that the uncertainties would cancel out. Past record of centres in the subject, is, therefore we, we had to ask for that. But is a centre really going to do just as well this year as other are, are candidates, as evidenced in the work, going to do just as well this year in this new syllabus, in this new qualification as they did last year? Question. Putative grades, um, absolutely necessary, necessary to use it, though this is a technique that is intended for quite large numbers of candidates such as would, be characterised, uh, such as would characterise A-levels in the UK. So, issues there. And another kind of issue of principle, which has come up in uh, an earlier seminar of this, this kind is that some of these are, are pointing to comparability of performance and some of them are pointing to comparability of outcome and they're not necessarily the same thing. Okay, This one is, if you like, allied to my question of, well, what A-level grades would, would these candidates have got if they'd done A-level? Let's do a distribution... We can't do it on an individual basis, but let's get a general idea of the distribution and expect the distribution to be similar to that. That's what you get when you do the putative grades stuff. Top one... Is, well, they should, the candidates, should be evident from the candidates' work that they are of operating at the same, um, they're, they're, they're operating at the same evidenced level of um, ability. So th- that uh, produced a uh, slight uh, conflict. And finally, since we're very close to the end, reporting of results, what, these grades that I've been talking to you about and how they were determined. Uh, were not going to be accompanied, as, as A-level grades would be in the UK, by a uniform mark. Okay? Now, uniform marks, um, the history of uniform marks is they were introduced to uh, supplement information about candidates' performance in modules or in units so that they would know how many points they were clocking up towards uh, a, a target, how many they were accumulating during their two years or whatever. Not relevant, not relevant to a linear qualification and we decided against uniform marks we decided but if we're not having uniform marks which give you a mark from 100% down to 0 or 600 out of 600 down to 0 or 400 or whatever um, we'd have more grades that's why we had nine grades d1 d2 d3 and so on we couldn't have nine grades we decided for component grades paper grades which we produce so we we did have uh, three grades distinction merit pass and we reported that So we were going to do that and then we decided that we would also indicate how close a candidate was to the next grade up by saying this was the candidate's overall mark and this other mark was what they needed to get to get to the next highest grade. So they would know if they were very close or not.
0: Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm mindful that we're coming to the end of our time, and the next, the three slides I was going to talk about in terms of continuing development, you have them, um, and I'm not going to go through them one by one. Um, the point really was to, that, that we wanted to make with this fourth challenge was that once you've developed something, it doesn't then exist for all time. You just have to keep working at it, and of course, we will keep working at it, and you'll see that um, we've we had, a, we had a lot of. Um, Opportunities to gather feedback from the teachers and the schools who had and who had not been involved following the first um, administration of the pre-U exams last year. And immediately we decided that there were some things that we wanted to work on. So there are one or two new subjects that we're developing, new short courses. There were schools that wanted to take, for example, pre-U maths but they were put off from taking pre-U maths because their candidates wanted to take A-level maths and then A-S further maths, so halfway to further maths, if you like. And that wasn't possible with pre-U because it just didn't fit together nicely. So we d- agreed that we would do a, a work to develop a, a, a short course in further maths. We've developed... that. That is coming through. We've already developed the pre-U course in maths, That would be typically for students who aren't doing maths and science subjects for their main principal subjects, but do want a little bit of maths to take forward. Um, We've talked a lot about how hard can it be, and and it would be lovely to stand in front of you and say it was really hard, it was hard work, and a, a huge amount of work went into it on everybody's part, and that would be true, but then to say, and we got everything completely right first time off. Well... If that was, if I said that, that wouldn't be quite true. There were some things that we we actually realised we, you know, we'd aimed at the target, we hadn't quite hit it. And I, I, I um, point to um, Mark mentioned on one slide, you know, how difficult it is to get the um, level of the question papers exactly right. Not too difficult, not too easy. And we did find last year that. Um, the maths question papers, or um, not all of the maths question papers, one of the maths question papers was actually more difficult than we'd intended it to be. And the result of this was that we had to set the cut scores quite low, and the result of it was that we had to think very hard about how we did that. Um, And we've gone back to to, um, Ofqual, I was going to say back to QCA, but they'd changed into Ofqual in the meantime, to actually... uh, with some newly developed specimen materials to actually exemplify what the changes were that we thought it was right to introduce to the maths question papers so that we had the standard absolutely spot on and those of you was well, that 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 was an example of one of the changes that we've made um we um just about well we are now today is the first day of the timetable for the second administration of of, of the U examinations and um we're just now getting to the beginning, really, of the research programme t- in terms of outcomes and in terms of where people have gone. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.